The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here's your host, Victoria Moran. Hey everybody, welcome to the program. It's going to be fun today because we're going to talk about cooking slowly. We've all heard of slow food, but we're going to be talking literally about slow food and really yummy food in just a minute. After the first break, we'll be speaking with Marta Zaraska, author of the critically acclaimed new book, Meat Hooked, The History and Science of Our 2.5 Million Year Obsession with Meat. She's a science writer and is going to be looking at why your brother-in-law just refuses to eat your veggie burgers. That should be interesting. But you know what? After we talk with our first guest, probably even your brother-in-law would eat anything that you prepare because Kathy Hester is such an amazing woman about the kitchen. I saw a wonderful movie this past weekend. It was called Hello, My Name is Doris, starring Sally Field as a woman of a certain age who falls for a younger guy. And as they grow in their friendship, he starts taking her to hipster spots in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And she meets all of these young people who are obsessed with doing it themselves, all this kitchen DIY stuff. So they're talking about making their own yogurt and making their own mustard. And she said, I make blueberry muffins. And they go, cool. And she says, it's from a mix, but I add the blueberries. And they say, awesome. And you know what? There is a lot of that in the world. We all want to know how to cook. 
this just kind of happened, and here we are, and especially as vegans, we need friends like Kathy Hester. So let me tell you a bit about her, if you do not already know her well, which you probably do, because she has a mega popular blog and social media presence. Kathy Hester is the author of The Vegan Slow Cooker, The Great Vegan Bean Book, Vegan slow cooking for two or just for you? That's my favorite. I bought a little bitty slow cooker uh, when I got this cookbook. It's really fun. She wrote Outrageous Oatmeals and the Easy Vegan Cookbook. And her fabulously popular blog is HealthySlowCooking.com. She has a new project coming up for next year, The Vegan Instant Pot. Now, we've talked about pressure cooking before, and I think most people think that the Instant Pot only does that. Well, guess what? It also has a slow cooker. Who knew? Welcome, Kathy Hester. Thank you so much for having me. You've already got a big smile on my face. (laughs) Well, that's fully mutual. So I love it that you're teaching us to not be intimidated by the slow cooker that we got as a graduation or a homecoming or a wedding gift. So tell us what's so great about letting your food just sit in there and cook for the longest time. I think the most important thing is that you can make cooking work for you and your schedule. And I think that's one of the reasons we all, everyone, even people who don't know how to cook yet, we all aspire to cook. But it can be hard to kind of fit things in. So like my first cookbook, The Vegan Slow Cooker, I broke it down to things you can do the night before. So you can cut up all your stuff the night before. Then when you wake up in the morning, you just throw the things that you've stored in the fridge overnight and then go to work. You come home and you've got a really nice, healthy meal. And and I like things that cook while you're not there. Or you don't have to pay attention to them. Now, can you really just throw in everything? I know you make it really easy, and I think that's one reason that your blog and your books are so popular. But I've seen other slow cooker recipes online where by the time you parboil and saute and do all this extra stuff, you may as well just cook it in a pot. There there are some some different recipes that 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 can do well with a little sautéing first. And there are a couple of options around that. One is, if you don't have time to sauté it, don't. (laughs) I know that's, it won't taste quite as wonderful, but if we're talking about, can you eat a wonderful, wholesome soup at home, are you going to grab some Chinese takeout? Then, Go ahead and have the onions be a little stronger. Um, there are some slow cookers that have like a, a saute insert, and the Instant Pot, which also does slow cooking, has a saute function. So you can use just one pot, saute those onions, and then add in the rest of your ingredients. Oh, boy. It's not even may yet and i'm already thinking what's going to be on my christmas list so (laughs) one of the reasons that i'm interested in slow cooking is i'm really attracted to ayurveda i just take the ghee out and and the milk and, and make it vegan and particularly for my body type which is vata they say that slow cooked soups and stews are really really comforting and that i need to be doing a lot of that so 
as somebody who wants this great food for the middle of the day instead of for dinner, since I work from home and need it for lunchtime, do I just put it in the night before on low or that morning on high? What does one do if you've only got four or five hours? You can do it either way. What I would probably recommend is if you're at home, go ahead and cook it on high. And if something cooks between seven to nine hours on high, it'll be between three and a half to four and a half hours on, I mean, if it cooks from seven to nine hours on low, it'll be three and a half to four and a half hours on high. So it's about twice as fast. Okay. So that's pretty well safe for any recipe. Absolutely. Um, the only things you don't want to change up too much are things that are already uh, written for high temperature, like uh, lasagna, for instance. It cooks on high usually bet- like two to three hours, and so you can't really put it on low for a longer time. But things that are not possible, you can always kind of go the opposite way and turn things up to high, though. Okay. Now, we did get uh, an email question in. Somebody said, ask her why my oatmeal always sticks. (laughs) There could be a couple things. Um, One is going to depend on what you're cooking it in as well. So if you're using water or a non-dairy milk, if you find that it sticks a lot, I'd recommend to try um, something like So Delicious Coconut Milk or a a no-name coconut milk brand that's in a carton, not in a can, because that has a little higher fat content. You can also lightly spray your crock with some oil if oil is allowed in your diet. And barring all of that, (laughs) if it still sticks a little bit, if you just soak it during the day and it actually will come out in one piece. And so I soak mine with water and then I pull out that piece and my dog loves it. So it's a treat. You mean the little piece of stuck-on oatmeal? Yeah, because it might. On one of mine that cooks hotter, I have an older one uh, that's called a Crockett. It's from the '80s. It's a small uh, one and a half quart slow cooker, and it cooks oatmeal perfectly. Because um, there's old, older ones actually cook at a lower temperature than new ones because of food safety rules, which don't really apply to us as vegans. But we're still stuck with the results. Oh, I see. So if somebody was cooking chicken or something with a lot of bacteria, they need it to get hot enough to hopefully kill some of that stuff. Exactly. So if someone has maybe their mother's slow cooker and it broke and they're getting a new one, you're going to have to relearn timing on all your old recipes. But Mm -hmm. once you get the hang of it, it's not that hard. Also, um, one brand that I recommend highly is the Cuisinart 3.5 or 4-quart slow cooker Uh because it actually has um, low, high, warm, and simmer. And simmer is like the old low. Okay. I love that. I love it. They're always coming out with the color that's the new black, and now we have simmer is the old low. <laughs> exactly. So I, I must say, Kathy, some of the things that you do in a slow cooker, I would never have dreamed. I mean, I, I have some experience with soups and stews and uh, warm dips and certainly hot cider at Christmas time, but oh my gosh, you, you really do macaroni and cheese at and all kinds of incredible desserts 
are these actually easier or are you really just challenging yourself and wanting to do something spectacular? Well, there's always a little bit of wanting to do something spectacular. It's <laughs> up to that. Um, but I also like to put on the hat, like, like especially with ve- vegan slow cooking for two, for instance. I'm thinking there was a large population that gets ignored a lot that could use it like college students, single vegans in a, a, a multiple household where they're the only vegans, or even, you know, senior citizens. So it could be that people are in a situation where they're cooking in their dorm or they're cooking maybe even in, um, like, a camper somewhere. So I tried to think of that and, like, what if you didn't have a lot of other tools? How could you still do that in your slow cooker? Yeah. And and that's kind of what prompted me to try the pasta and some things like that. I see. Well, I just want to share with our listeners some of the things that I have made in vegan slow cooking for two. I have not had a dud yet. Everything has worked, and that's really cool. So um, the vegan hazelnut creamer is so, so cool. I just had somebody the other day tell me that she loves her coffee and she loves for it to be creamy, but she doesn't like the commercial creamers because they put extra stuff in there. And so she just makes plain old hazelnut milk, and I shared this with her. And then I've also done Wake Up to Bananas Foster for Breakfast. That was always my favorite name of a dessert when I used to go to restaurants with my parents, but I never thought I would ever in a million years make it myself. And guess what? I have, and I have done it in a very small slow cooker. (laughs) And then I have also done something that you call can't be beat curried bean dip. Again, in my quest to be more and more Ayurvedic, I'm always looking for curried stuff. And that was really good too. So everybody check out this book, Vegan Slow Cooking for Two, and then of course all the others. Now you do have a new one in the works. It won't be out till next winter, but give us a preview. What all can this vegan instant pot do? Well, the, the cool thing about the vegan instant pot is you can make smaller amounts or larger amounts too. So instead of having to have a one and a half or two quart slow cooker to do small slow cooking and a four quart slow cooker to kind of do normal slow cooking, you can have it all in one. So it has a slow cooker setting. It has a uh, electric pressure cooker setting. It also has a rice cooker setting, a kanji setting. Um, and some various other ones that are just really variations on the manual electric pressure cooking setting. But and do they I, really all work? They do. And actually, in the book, I've gone through and talked about all of them and what they do and how you can. It gets a little confusing because it is like a little computer panel. Um, but once you know that you don't need to pay attention to all of that, um, it helps a lot. I found. I found it to be really nice because if you're doing white rice, which many of us do not, um, you would use the regular rice cooking setting. However, if you're doing brown rice, you still only cook it for 22 minutes. And that's pretty awesome. Well, that is pretty awesome. I, I think that the grains, the whole grains, do tend to intimidate people. Now, you said a word that I'm not sure I know. What's kanji? Uh, kanji is like a, an Asian rice porridge that's savory. So it looks a lot like our watery oatmeal. It's often made with rice. 
And I make one that has like rice and mushrooms and some soy sauce and ginger. It's it's kind of like tummy tonic stew mm. is the way I would think of it. So whenever I don't feel well, congee is a really good thing to have. That is so interesting because, number one, you're telling me what I eat for breakfast every day in Hong Kong. Now I know. <laughs> and also, this congee sounds like the kind of Asian version of Indian kitchery. Which is also for when your tummy's not been doing quite so well, or you just want to do a little detox but still eat. Utterly fascinating. So it's amazing how many of these different dishes go cross cultures. Mm. So tell us what is usually bubbling up in your slow cooker. I always like to ask experts on things, and they usually end up with very simple answers. Yeah, sometimes I do more simple things for me. I'm often doing um, dolls and curries in mm-hmm. there because I just I adore Indian food. So all of my cookbooks have some Indian food in it because I can't get enough. Um, and it's so easy to make dolls or even, like, you can do any kind of bean in the slow cooker from dry or soaked unless they're kidney beans, red kidney beans. So even something like a small red bean, you still could do that. There's a special weird toxin that has, like, a 17-syllable word for it. <laughs> so I'm not going to try and pronounce it, but it needs to be Red kidney beans need to be boiled for 10 minutes at a roaring boil, and then they can be added to the slow cooker and cooked safely. And that's really the only, you know, little disclaimer that you have about the slow cooker. Well, that's fascinating. Well, I've switched from kidney beans to the small red beans because I learned from Dr. Greger a few years ago that the small red beans are much higher in antioxidants because they're smaller and so they have more skins. And the antioxidants are in that colorful skin anyway. So we'll just toss those babies in the slow cooker. (laughs) So when you do the Indian food, do you do the rice as well or do you do that somewhere else separately? Typically, when I've used my slow cooker, I would have my rice cooker going to make rice separately. There are a few recipes where I mix them together, but that, like pasta, you have to watch it very carefully because it'll go from, it's not done, it's not done, to, oh, it's a little bit too done. Kind of like avocados. You have to get that perfect magic moment. I see. And sometimes it's okay, isn't it, to make a mistake? It's always okay to make a mistake. Um, I, I would be in big trouble if you can't make mistakes. Uh, when, whenever I get an idea in my head, I try it. Sometimes even if I know it probably will fail. Because sometimes it doesn't. And then, <laughs> then I have something really cool to present to someone who might want to make something differently. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the reasons that your blog is so popular and that everybody likes you, because you are really understanding and understanding of non-cooks. You know, we weren't all born with a wooden spoon in our hand. <laughs> oh, no. And and I think that, especially now with it being kind of hip to cook again, I think some people can get a little more self-conscious about not knowing what to do. And I... I'm the person who I really, I love to learn new things after I've kind of gotten into it. To start learning, I just feel so inept and I get really nervous. And because I'm like that, I'm really good with people who do that when I'm trying to help them. Oh, I love that. And I also love your Twitter and Instagram handle is Geeky Poet. 
So this shows that you don't take yourself terribly seriously, and I love it that you're a poet. The blog is healthyslowcooking.com, as is the website, uh, Facebook, Vegan Slow Cooker, and we'll put all that and all the book titles and um, how to find Kathy online on the show notes. If you go to MainStreetVegan.net, click on podcast, you will see a cute little drop down uh, so you can get all that information. Kathy, happy cooking and recipe testing and writing of the new book. And uh, we'll have to have you back then and talk about that. Oh, I would love that. And let me know if you end up with any new slow cooking questions. I'm always here to help. Oh, terrific, because I'll bet I will. (laughs) Thank you so very much. Everybody else, please stay with us. We're going to learn about how this world got meat hooked. Stay with us. As Unity Online Radio continues to expand its programming and outreach to the world, we count on the support of listeners like you. Please make your donation today. Go to www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now. What if you could experience vibrant health? help heal the planet and be a great friend to god's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast lunch and dinner authors victoria and adair moran say you can do this easily affordably and deliciously in their new book main street vegan everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. moment we live can be holy and all we need to do to experience that state is to make the decision to do so everything we do can be a prayer and by using our innate creativity with intention in every aspect of our lives that can indeed be true author carla kincannon wrote creativity is so much more than art making It is a tool for navigating through everyday experiences to find the sacred in each God-given moment. Discover Creative Spirit, Wednesdays at 4 p.m. Central Time, and experience the joy of connecting to spirit through creative expression. Listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. 
Welcome back, everyone. I'm so excited to be introducing you to an author that my husband discovered for me. He's so sweet. He gets up early and checks out all the vegan news from all around the world. And this book has been getting so much press and so much buzz so that when he brought it to my attention, I wanted to jump on the bandwagon and share Marta Zaraska and her fascinating new book, Meat Hooked, with you. Marta is a Polish-Canadian journalist whose science writing has appeared in the Washington Post, Scientific American, Newsweek, the LA Times, New Scientist, all over the place. She has an MA in law from the University of Warsaw and lives in France with her husband, daughter, and their two elderly dogs, bless their hearts. Welcome, Marta Zaraska. Hi, thank you for having me. It's absolutely wonderful. This is a very unique book. Meat Hooked, The History and Science of Our 2.5 Million Year Obsession with Meat. Oh my gosh, who knew we had been obsessed for that long? (laughs) Yes, that's right. We definitely have been eating meat for that long. And I think that's from the first time that our ancestors have tried meat. Uh, They discovered soon that it was a food that was uh, calorie dense and full of nutrients. And, you know, when you lived two and a half million years ago on African savanna, you didn't have much choice uh, of foods. You know, you didn't have the whole foods of today. You didn't have, you know, all the kale and lentils and everything we have today. Uh, So meat was a wonderful food for them. So obviously they they got really, you know, into it and um, they soon discovered it was a very, very good thing to get and uh, very good for their bodies back then. So how did humans start eating meat? Did, did we get animals that carnivores had killed and left a little bit of? Yeah, that's precisely how it was. So basically, in the very very early beginnings, we were not hunters. Most likely, we were not hunters. We were scavengers. And uh, even not active scavengers, but passive scavengers. So people who would basically stumble upon something uh, killed on a savanna, like a zebra or a giraffe that the lion has killed and haven't finished eating. Uh, and modern science shows that uh, actually hunters, such as uh, predators, such as lions or leopards, they actually leave a lot of meat behind. So they don't, you know, eat everything and just leave the bones. There is a lot of food left over. And this was the kind of food that was perfect for our ancestors. It was just basically there uh, if you stumbled upon it. And that's most likely what happened. You know, one time some of our ancestors were walking and they, you know, saw this leftover meat and were like, hey, you know, why not try eating it? That may be something good and uh, and worth trying. And uh, once they tried, they discovered there were calories in it, a lot of it. So So it was good for them. Hmm. And evolution is just not caught up? Uh, so, yeah, so here is the thing, you know, as I, when I say that it was good for them, you know, I'm talking about people living in, you know, not even people, you know, there were our ancestors, but not even Homo sapiens, uh, living two and a half million years ago or two million years ago. Once again, you know, these were people who didn't have access to much food. Uh, so their priorities very, very, very different. First of all, they needed to find nutrition, calories, as many as possible, right? And uh, protein as well. You know, they, they needed to find it. And another thing was that the priority of their genes was to, you know, survive to the next generation. So as long as, the, as they lived enough to have 
a lot of children, that was good. You know, they could have, then they could have died. So most of them lived to say 35 years old. And then that was it. And nowadays our priorities obviously changed. Nobody wants to die at 35 and uh, we don't live only to have children. Uh, we want to have long, fulfilling lives. And, uh, and here, you know, the, the diets obviously needs to be different. So that's why what was very good for our ancestors two million years ago is not necessarily what is good for us nowadays. Brilliant. Ah. I wish you were talking to some of my paleo friends. Maybe you are. Maybe they're <laughs> listening. Why did you write this book? So basically, you know, I've read many of the books that have been written on the topic of meat, uh, both from the health perspective, the environmental perspective, and also the uh, and animal ethics perspective. And I always felt that something was missing. You know, these, these were many of those books were really great books and uh, showing, you know, the industrial farming and, you know, also how meat eating may not be good for our health and so on. But I, it always bothered me, you know, if it's so bad for us, why do people still want to eat meat? You know, why do we do it? And in such huge amounts as well, right? And we just crave it and people say, I just love it. I cannot let go of it if it's so bad. So, you know, what's keeping us hooked? And I just couldn't find a book like that. And so I decided to write it. Ah, oh, well, what is keeping us hooked? Oh, that, that took me a whole book to explain. Uh, but let, let me try, you know, to at least summarize some of the points. Uh, so basically, there are very plenty different, there are plenty of different reasons why we stay hooked on meat. And some of them are based in our genetics, uh, because it is true that for some people, uh, it may be slightly more easy to go vegetarian. For example, uh, if you are blind, so-called blind to a taste called umami, uh, which is a very important factor in how much people like meat, uh, if you don't genetically don't respond to this t taste and don't find it delicious like most people do, and there is about 3% of society that is like that, umami blind, uh, it may be easier for you to go vegetarian. There are still no studies that would study this exactly, you know, population of vegetarians, uh, whether they, you know, find it easier or not, but most likely that's what would happen. Also, people for, who are genetically more likely to um, to look for novel foods, for new foods, and uh, there is some condition called neophobia, and this is basically people being afraid of trying new foods, so trying ethnic foods or sushi or anything that's, you know, not what you grew up, grew up with, uh, these people are called neophobic, and this is genetical as well. So if you are like that, it's also less likely that you are going to try vegetarian diet because it's a novel diet, it's a new food. So there is definitely a little bit of genetics, but this is not the most important factor. And there is also the taste of meat, of course. So the, you know, the umami was, which I mentioned, there is the fat in meat as well. Uh, there is also something called the Maillard reaction, which are the flavors created when we when we grill, uh, grill meat or cook it, boil it, mostly grill. This is the browning on the outside, you know, the delicious smell that come from the grill when you put a piece of steak on it. Uh, these are the flavors of the so-called Maillard reaction. This is the same thing that happens when you bake cookies, for example, or when you toast a piece of bread. A very similar flavors. So this is all comes together as the specific flavor of meat. That's another reason. And, you know, there, there is 
there is also the whole cultural part, you know, the symbolism of meat, the meat as symbol of wealth and power and masculinity. There is, there is just plenty of re- reasons from coming from very different, uh, areas of human life. And of course, there is a meat industry on top of it all, uh, with its, you know, sales that are as, as big as the GDP of countries such as Hungary or Ukraine. So, so it, there is, re- it's really hard to, you know, just, summarize it in one sentence there there are so many of those reasons utterly utterly fascinating so who's your target audience who do you want most to read meat hooked that's a tough question uh because i think that this book can be good for both meat lovers and vegetarians and vegans uh and people who are trying to cut down on meat for different reasons uh so for example for people who are trying to cut down on meat whether you call them you know flexitarians or reducitarians uh this book can help them understand why they may find it difficult sometimes to give up meat uh, and why they may be struggling or craving meat still even though they are trying to eat less of it and it can also offer them help how to overcome those troubles and and problems and how, how to uh, manage it make it easier on themselves uh, on the other hand for vegetarians and vegans for example uh, this book can ex- help them understand why the vast majority of humanity is not following in their steps you know it's you you, you if you you're a vegan, for example, very committed to your case and to animal welfare and so on, uh, sometimes it might be hard to, you know, understand why is not everybody doing the same thing you know they they should also see that and just stop eating meat right but obviously um at least 95 percent of the population of earth is not doing that they're just not going vegetarian so why you know, why are they so resistant to this message? And uh, why also having conversations between meat, meat lovers and vegetarians uh, offer, often turn ugly? You know, they're, they're, if you put on, in one, on one dinner, at one dinner table vegetarians and meat eaters, uh, there is a pretty good chance that at some point they will start fighting, you know, they, you know, over the diet, over, you know, having, I don't know, leather shoes and things like that. So why? What's causing those fights on this, and, and, and you know, passionate uh, conversations and for meat lovers as well you know to understand why they love meat what is so special you know that when they say i just love steak i just crave steak i, I want it i want a steak why what, what is behind all those cravings mm. did you find any research that supports perhaps that going completely vegetarian as opposed to partially so might be easier. I'm thinking about alcoholics that don't Mm -hmm. drink at all and even people who give up sugar who find that if they just completely stay away from it, the cravings go away. So it's complicated. So both scenarios can work in for different people uh, and in different situations. So for example, uh, it is easier to go vegetarian or vegan uh, overnight if you have something that scientists call a conversion experience. And basically, this happens usually when people will watch some very disturbing video of industry, industrial farming. It, that happens, for example, to my husband when he watched the um, If uh, if Slaughterhouses had, had Glass Walls, narrated by Paul McCartney. So he watched this movie and just basically overnight he went from meat lover to vegetarian. And, uh, and this is called a conversion experience. And uh, such thing helps people to 
stay on vegetarian diet also because uh, studies show that uh, ethical vegetarians uh, develop physical disgust with meat in the same way people are disca- disgusted by you know some dirty things or you know and or some bodily products and so on uh, they also become disgusted physically by meat and this is something that does not happen to health vegetarians for example they don't develop this physical disgust which makes it harder to stick to the diet but on the other hand you know for other people who will uh who maybe are not so responsive to this uh ethical side of meat eating but maybe are more interested in the health aspects or environmental aspects uh going slow may work very well as well because you know for some people also saying you have to stick to your diet forever and ever and you will never you may never ever try meat may also scare them away you know it's uh, this is also something that philosopher peter singer says that uh you know such purity may work against convincing people so if you tell them for example go basically vegetarian but you may still have a little bit of this thanksgiving turkey they are more likely to try it because they'll be not so scared away by the prospect of never ever having meat again or any animal products Mm. I love what you're saying. If we want to reach everybody, we have to reach everybody in different ways because exactly. people are different. If exactly. you are listening live on Wednesday, April 20th, 3 o'clock East Coast time and want to ask Marta a question live and in person, just give a call at 816-347-5519. So Marta, what about the mock meats. Some of them are so realistic these days. It's funny that you talked about the disgust. When I cook a particular one that is chicken-like, my husband loves it. My dog loves it. (laughs) I can barely stand the smell, but it's very authentic. And I know sometimes people will say, well, what's the point of being vegan if you want to have something that's like meat? Where does that enter in? Uh, so yeah, you're completely right. I actually myself have tried, um, fake beef, uh, in the Netherlands that was so realistic. I, I did not like it because I'm also vegetarian and, and it was just too much like beef for me. Uh, and, uh, and yes, but actually I think this, this kind of products have a very important role and that is to ease the transition for many people from meat meatful diets to plant-based diets uh, and there are plenty of reasons for that first of them is the taste of meat and we have evolved to look for those particular flavor particular flavors found in meat so the fat because obviously it's full of uh, fat means calories so our ancestors were always looking for more cal- calories more calories the better right uh, more it's better for survival uh, then there is the umami taste uh, which is very important in meat uh, this means in japanese delicious and this is the same taste that is found for example in cheese and uh, tomatoes and mushrooms uh, and uh, it's very abundant in meat as well. And this taste most likely means that the food is full of protein. So our ancestors evolved to look for it, to look out for it, because they were looking for protein. And then the last ingredient of meat um, flavor that is very important, the Maillard reaction that I mentioned, so this sense of grilling or baking cookies and so on, uh, they symbolize that the food has been cooked. And cooked means safe to eat because most likely there are no more parasites or bacteria uh, as they can be found in undercooked foods. So they evolved to look for this particular flavor 
flavors. So this mock meat products, this fake meats, uh, they fulfill this uh, craving, you know, they meet the craving that we have evolved to have. And this is something very hard to overcome. You know, we, we do still have uh, those cravings that our ancestors evolved to have. Uh, on the other hand, also, there is a cultural aspect. So uh, in our Western culture, uh, we have something, we have a very specific plate composition. This is what scientists call it. So when you look at your plate and your dinner plate, um, in our Western culture, there will be usually two vegetables on it, some kind of starch, uh, potatoes, or maybe rice, and meat. And uh, in Asia, they have a very different plate composition. Basically, they have a lot of little bowls with different small dishes. And if you remove from an Asian, sta- an Asian table a little bowl with meat on it, you still have plenty of little dishes left. Uh, but if you take the meat away from a Westerner's plate, there is a huge empty spot left on this plate. And, and we panic. We don't know what to do with this empty sp- an empty space. And those fake meats have a, have this amazing role that they can basically easily fill up this space. You just plop the vegetarian mock chicken there and, and you know, and you're good to go. So it really helps people transition uh, when they don't know how to cook other vegetarian meals that the traditional food that they grew up with. That makes so much sense. I know I was on a panel once and someone asked about mock meats and my fellow panelists were talking about how how terrible they are and that they're processed and that they have gluten and they have salt and blah. And I finally said at the end of the table, I I begged to differ and gave some of the, the points that you have made. And then the person sitting next to me said, I changed my opinion because it's true. They're, they're really, um, there's definitely a place for whatever helps make this easier. But somebody who's really making it harder, I think, for everybody who's looking at a vegetarian, vegan, or even moving in this direction is the meat industry. They seem oh, yeah. to be running scared. So what do they do to help keep us hooked? Obviously, you know, for them, if we stop eating meat, they stop existing, right? So it's a matter of life and death. And they are trying to sell their product. And very often we forget that the meat industry uh, is just an industry, you know, just like a shoe industry or handbag industry or cosmetic industry. They're just selling their products. Uh, they are not here for our some kind of higher well-being. They are here to sell their products, sausages and steaks and so on and burgers. And they want to do it no matter the costs. Um you know, environmental and so on and health costs. We just want to sell it and make business. So, um, so of course, you know, they, they do everything they can to make sure we will be eating meat and, uh, and they have plenty of ways to do it. You know, they definitely play on the symbolism of meat in their advertisements. And uh, they invest a lot of money into lobbying, for example, to make sure that the sub agricultural subsidies are still there. Uh, for soy and corn uh, in US, uh, which are absolutely huge, and they really mostly uh, help the meat industry uh, to keep going. And uh, and then uh, you have uh, you know the, there's the whole problem of revolving doors between the USDA and the meat industry, where the same people basically are 
at one time in the meat industry and then they go to USDA and then they go from USDA to the meat industry. And uh, these are the people responsible for, you know, dietary guidelines and so on. And uh, so obviously they're trying to do everything in their power to make sure that um, that uh, the government doesn't say anything against us eating meat. Uh, and, uh, and also they are trying to silence people like myself, you know, journalists. Uh, thankfully, I haven't heard anything yet from them. Uh, but many journalists have and write and uh, and uh, the industry uses lawsuits, um, you know, the, against uh, against uh, journalists and writers to make sure they don't say anything that um, they don't want. They don't want said. Uh, so there are the you know the agag laws and uh, and also other laws that basically mean that you cannot offend a meat product um, because then you can get sued. I know, but as a fellow author, I I want to wish you that Meat Hooked be so incredibly successful that they come after you, just that you win. (laughs) (laughs) I I definitely got myself good good insurance just in that case. You know, it's been recommended to me by other fellow writers, you know, just to stay on on the safe side. Uh, You have to. Bless your heart. It's, it's, it's a pity that it's come to that, but maybe it's good. Maybe it's something that we have to go through uh, before we can really see uh, a drastic decrease in the number of animals that are killed for food. So those of us who are already vegan or vegetarian, and probably a lot of our friends and family just wish we would go away, what can we do to help these people if they are indeed obsessed do we play a role in helping end that? Uh, so I think the first step is really to understand why we crave meat. You know, it's a little bit like with smoking. So, for example, imagine we had no idea that nicotine was additive, addictive, right? And uh, if we didn't know about all those habits that make people crave a cigarette, if we didn't understand at all why people get addicted to smoking, it would be really hard to tell anybody to quit. And it's a little bit the same with meat. So first we have to understand why we crave it, and then we can start unhooking ourselves. So for example, if we understand the taste and flavors of meat, we can try to look for substitutes. So you, if you are craving meat, you may be craving something fatty. So maybe you're craving, you know, maybe ice cream will do, like, you know, full fat ice cream instead of meat, or maybe a, a grilled sandwich with avocado on it and, and mushrooms to, to get all this Maillard reaction and fat and, and the umami taste. Maybe that will do. Uh, also, you know, there are plenty of uh, little tricks that you can try. Uh, for example, we know that people like foods more when they eat them with other people in festive uh, circumstances. Uh, this is also why we love meat, because we often eat meat during celebrations, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, uh, all this kind of Sunday roast dinners, you know, where everybody meets. Uh, this is how we came to love meat as well. And you can use it on the other way to unhook yourself and to start loving plant foods. So eat them with your friends, you know, have parties, vegetarian food parties when everybody enjoys themselves and eats something delicious together. Uh, even watching other people eat something, uh, some foods while they're smiling and enjoying themselves make us also like those foods more. So, uh, you know, so be friends, uh, be friends with uh, other vegetarians and uh, observe how they enjoy eating those foods. It will help as well. Even 
things like rewarding yourself for uh, for uh, eating vegetarian food. So if you eat a vegetarian meal, for example, or have a meat-free Monday, at the end of the day, reward yourself again with chocolate, ice cream, cookies, whatever works for you uh, to make to make yourself like the the whole experience even more. That's that's very important. This is how our brain works. We we this kind of we tie together this experience pleasure of the reward uh, with what happened before. And uh, and in this ways, you can learn to enjoy the whole vegetarian plant-based diet. Also, cooking classes, you know, the main reason why people stop eating uh, vegetarian foods uh, and go back to eating meat is because they don't know how to cook vegetarian. So take classes, so, you know, buy yourself a cookbook or, or subscribe to many of the amazing blogs out there with vegetarian foods. I, and that would make us so nice, you know, if, if we bring chocolate chip cookies to work or give somebody a wonderful cookbook for their birthday, it's not like, ooh, you're eating that. You know, yeah. It just kind of makes it all a little friendlier. So there is another kind of meaty thing on the horizon that I'm actually excited about for feeding cats because, you know, we know Cats can't be vegetarians, yeah. so let's bring on the lab-grown meat. Kind of gross-sounding, but oh my gosh, it's a way for people and cats to have meat without killing anybody. So what do yeah. you see on the horizon there? Oh yeah, it's it's coming. You know, I, I've been recently talking I, uh, to the producers of such meats, and they are saying that basically in three to five years, we can already expect those products on uh, in very upmarket luxurious restaurants uh, or some very fancy supermarkets. Uh, for example, in places like Dubai, let's say, uh, they can already start selling those. So it's really coming soon, and uh, and uh, it makes sense. You know, you can have basically uh, enormous amounts of meat. Out of bi- taken from a living cow, you take a bi- you bi- take a biopsy from a living cow, and you get all the stem cells you need to to grow plenty of meat for, for to feed a whole village. And uh, and such a meat also could be made uh, healthier because they can remove uh, saturated fats from it and replace them with omega three fatty acids, for example. Uh, they can also lower the amount of. Uh, ma- um, Hemi iron, which is also, which also has been connected to, uh, cancer. So they can really play with the ingredients, uh, with the composition of such meat, uh, to make it even better than the conventional product, than conventional meat. Um, so yeah, it's coming and, uh, it's definitely has a lot to offer and, uh, the environmental costs of such meat would also be hugely lower. Um, you know, the, the land needed to grow such meat would be 99% less than uh, what we need to grow conventional meat. So I'm also hopeful, you know, it's one of the ways to, uh, to wean humanity of meat. It's so interesting when we have to just be practical. I was talking with my husband this morning about some of these very small sanctuaries for farmed animals that will go out to an auction and save animals. In other words, they'll buy them. But then the next day or the next week, there are others back to take their place. And as much as, you know, when you have a heart for animals, you want to help everybody who's helping them. But sometimes you just have to be practical. And something like the cloned meat, it's not perfect. It's not perfect from the vegan point of view, but it is colossally superior 
to anything we've got or, or have really ever reasonably hoped to have. So we need to be watching that. Now, you talk about something in your book that I found absolutely fascinating, and that is how eating meat actually changed the human body. How did it do that? Yeah, so that goes back again to this, say, two and a half million years ago when our ancestors started eating meat. And as I've said before, back then they didn't have, you know, the foods we have now. And meat was very special because it was, uh, it was calorie dense and full of nutrients, protein, vitamins, minerals. It was a really good food, food back then, you know, before our ancestors were surviving mostly on fruits, grass, uh, you know, things even like tree bark. Uh, that's what they were eating, and uh, and suddenly they, suddenly they had this nutritious, caloric food full of protein. It was it was really good for them, and this caloric food enabled them to grow bigger brains. And the reason for that is that brains are very energy uh, energy needy organs. Uh, when you're resting, your brain takes about 25% of all the calories that your body is using. Uh, for example, in a cat, that would be only about 3 to 5%. So that's a huge difference. So our brains need to be fed and they need very good, high-quality diet. And meat back then was that kind of food that could uh, that could nourish our growing brains. You know, if our ancestors had peanut butter, they would have gone with that, but they didn't have it. They, you know, they only had very, very limited choice. So another thing that happened when we started hunting was that we lost a lot of hay because when you hunt, uh, you need to dispose of excess heat from your body and uh and one way to do it was to lose the the hair to become bolder and uh on the other hand they also started sweating more especially on their backs uh we sweat much more for example than chimps do that's also because of hunting and of trying to regulate our bodily temperature during such you know very um during such activity Utterly fascinating. And yet we still have the long intestinal tract and the grinding teeth <laughs> for yeah. eating the plants. So it's just, it's as if we've come back around and uh, coming into our own as enlightened plant eaters of the 21st century. So the book is Meat Hooked. The History and Science of Our 2.5 Million Years Obsession with Meat. You can find Marta and her wonderful work on meathookedthebook.com and also elsewhere on social media. And I will put all that on the Main Street Vegan show notes. Final question, Marta, what do you foresee for the future? Uh, so, the, so there is difference between what I hope and what I foresee. So, what I hope for is that we all would stop eating meat overnight, basically, because uh, and for me, it's mostly because of environmental reasons. Uh, I'm absolutely terrified about the climate change, and and when you realize that eating meat is responsible for more greenhouse gas emissions than all the cars. Com- and trucks combined is actually the same as all the transportation in the world taken together. So planes, ships, trucks, passenger cars, scooters, everything together. So if we stopped eating meat, it would be equivalent of all the transportation vanishing from the 
face of the earth. So that would be huge. That would help us tremendously to solve our climate problems. But we just don't want to do it. And it's going to be extremely difficult. Basically, it's, it's impossible to convince people to do it like that uh, because of all the hooks. So, But I'm definitely hoping that we will go towards its goal and we'll go very fast. Uh, and uh, how I see it happening is mostly through uh, reducetarianism, so convincing huge amounts of people to reduce their consumption, to start reducing and then to reduce more and more. Uh, you know, I think because it's easier for most people, um, for those people who are still hooked on meat, to reduce a little bit. Uh, and once you start reducing your meat consumption, uh, you learn how to cook vegetarian. You learn that these foods are, you know, tasty and that you feel good eating them. Uh, then you can reduce a little bit more. So you start with, you know, meatless Mondays and then you add meatless Tuesdays and then maybe you'll add meatless Wednesdays and, you know, and hopefully it will end up as a meatless week. And uh, so that's what I'm hoping for and I'm hoping that it will happen uh, quite fast. Well, and I just hope right along with you and our listeners as well, thank you so very much for taking this time to talk with us from across the sea. (laughs) I uh, really do encourage you listeners to uh, get hold of this book and uh, learn, learn what's going on with our fellow meat eaters. And if you had some trouble making the transition yourself, maybe this will go back and explain why it was tough Congratulations that you got through it. Thank you so much, Marta. Thanks to Jeff Comfort, our engineer at Unity Online Radio. Next week, live show on the 27th of April, 2016. We are going to have a very popular blogger, the minimalist baker, Dana Schultz, with her new book, Everyday Cooking, and then a very unusual and important uh, program segment for us, and that is we are going to look at animal rights and vegetarian veganism within the Islamic faith. We'll be joined by Imam Sohab Sultan. He's the author of the Quran for Dummies, and he's a chaplain at Princeton University and uh, has quite a bit to say on a really fascinating subject. Thank you all so much for being part of the Main Street Vegan Show. God bless you bunches and eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. the key to happiness would you like to find the fountain of youth how about all the money and love that you could handle well my friends it is there for you you just need to strip off the false beliefs that keep your divine inheritance from being attracted into your life you need to be real be vulnerable be naked what are you waiting for let's get naked This transformational program with Reverend Heidi Alfrey is an invitation to explore and remove the blocks that keep you from emotional freedom. 
Listen to Heidi and her revealing guests as they embrace the power of spiritual nakedness as a guaranteed way to live an authentic and transparent life. Expose yourself to your greatness on Mondays at 3 p.m. Central Time. Let's get naked. No dress code required. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. You gotta get rid of your butt. It's bigger than it would appear. It hinders your forward movement when you keep bringing up the rear. Have you ever said to yourself, I'm living a life I never intended to create? What life did you intend to create? Did you set goals? Did you work toward reaching those goals? If we don't have a specific goal in mind or we don't know where we want to go, we may be likely to end up in places not of our choosing. Establishing goals along with guidelines on how to achieve them helps to keep us focused and energized and often makes our lives more interesting, useful, and successful. It's never too late to take control of your life. Once you have your purpose clearly in mind, explore the various ways you can make it happen and visualize the process you believe can work best. Set goals, do what it takes to accomplish them, and enjoy your process. This message has been brought to you by the Association of Unity Churches International. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.